Good morning, you're listening to WTUL New Orleans News and Views. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report, the Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As the nationwide uprising against police brutality and racism continues to roil the nation and the world, bringing down Confederate statues and forcing a reckoning in city halls and on the streets, President Trump defended law enforcement Thursday, dismissing growing calls to defund the police. He spoke at a campaign-style event at a church in Dallas, Texas, announcing a new executive order advising police departments to adopt national standards for use of force. Trump did not invite the top three law enforcement officials in Dallas, who are all African American. The move comes after Trump called protesters thugs and threatened to deploy the U.S. military to end, quote, riots and lawlessness. This is Trump speaking Thursday. They want to get rid of the police forces. They actually want to get rid of it. And that's what they do, and that's where they'd go. And you know that, because at the top position, there's not going to be much leadership. There's not much leadership left. Instead, we have to go the opposite way. We must invest more energy and resources in police training and recruiting and community engagement. We have to respect our police. We have to take care of our police. They're protecting us. And if they're allowed to do their job, they'll do a great job. And you always have a bad apple no matter where you go. You have bad apples. And uh, there are not too many of them. And I can tell you, there are not too many of them in the police department. We all know a lot of members of the police. Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden is also calling for an increase to police funding. In an op-ed in USA Today, he called for police departments to receive an additional $300 million to, quote, reinvigorate community policing in our country. On Wednesday night, Biden discussed police funding on The Daily Show. I don't believe police should be defunded, but I think the conditions should be placed upon them where departments are having to take significant reforms relating to the—we should set up a national use of force standard. But many argue reform will not fix the inherently racist system of policing. Since the global protest movement began, Minneapolis has pledged to dismantle its police department. The mayors of Los Angeles and New York City have promised to slash police department budgets, and calls to defund the police are being heard in spaces that would have been unthinkable just a few weeks ago. Well, for more on this historic moment, we are spending the hour with the legendary activist and scholar Angela Davis, professor emerita at the University of California, Santa Cruz. For half a century, Angela Davis has been one of the most influential activists and intellectuals in the United States, an icon of the black liberation movement. Angela Davis's work around issues of gender, race, class and prisons has influenced critical thought and social movements across several generations. She's a leading advocate for prison abolition, a position informed by her own experience as a prisoner and a fugitive on the FBI's top 10 wanted list more than 40 years ago. Once caught, she faced the death penalty in California. After being acquitted on all charges, she spent her life fighting to change the criminal justice system. Angela Davis, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us today for the hour. Thank you very much, Amy. It's wonderful to be here. Well, do you think this moment is a tipping point, a turning point? You, who have been involved in activism for almost half a century, do you see this moment as different, perhaps more different than any period of time you have lived through? Absolutely. This is uh, an extraordinary moment. I've never experienced uh, anything like the conditions we are currently experiencing. Um, the conjuncture created by the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and the recognition of the systemic racism that had that has been rendered visible under uh, uh, these uh, conditions because of the disproportionate deaths in Black and Latinx communities. And this is a moment I don't know whether I ever expected to experience. Um, when the protests began, of course, around the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud 
uh, Aubrey and Tony McDade and many others who've lost their lives to racist state violence um, and vigilante violence. Um, when these protests erupted, I remembered something that I've uh, said uh, many uh, times to encourage activists who often feel that the work that they do is not leading to tangible results. Um, I often ask them to consider the very long trajectory of black struggles. And, and what has been most important is the forging of legacies and new arenas of struggle that can be handed down to younger generations. But I've often said, one never knows when conditions may give rise to a conjuncture such as the current one um, that rapidly shifts popular consciousness and suddenly allows us to move in the direction of radical change. If one does not engage in the ongoing work, when such a moment arises, we cannot take advantage of the opportunities uh, to uh, change. Um, and of course, this moment will pass. The intensity of the current demonstrations cannot be sustained over time, uh, but we will have to be ready to shift gears and address these issues in different arenas, including, of course, the electoral arena. Angela Davis, you've more, long been a leader of the critical resistance movement, um, the abolition movement. And I'm wondering if you can explain the demand as you see it, what you feel needs to be done around defunding the police and then around prison abolition. Well, the call to defund the police is, I think, an abolitionist uh, demand. But it reflects only one aspect of uh, the process represented by uh, the demand. Defunding the police is not simply about withdrawing funding for law enforcement and doing nothing else. And it appears as if uh, this is uh, the, 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 the rather superficial understanding uh, that has caused um, Biden to move in the direction he's moving in. It's about shifting public funds to new services and, and, and new institutions, uh, mental health counselors uh, who um, can respond to people who are in crisis without arms. Uh, it's about shifting funding to education, to housing, to recreation. Uh, all of these things help to create security and safety. Um, it's about learning that safety, safeguarded by violence, is not really safety. And I would say that abolition is not primarily a negative strategy. It's not primarily about dismantling, getting rid of, but it's about re-envisioning. It's about building anew. And I would argue that abolition is a feminist uh, strategy, uh, and one sees in these abolitionist demands that are, are emerging the pivotal influence of, of feminist uh, theories and practices. Explain that further. Um, well, I want us to see feminism not only as addressing um, issues of gender, uh, but rather as a methodological approach uh, of, of understanding the intersectionality of, 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 of struggles uh, and, 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 and issues. Uh, um, abolition feminism counters carceral feminism, which has unfortunately assumed that issues such as violence against women can be effectively addressed by um, using police force, by, uh, by, 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 by using imprisonment as a solution. And of course, we know that uh, Joseph Biden in um, 1994, uh, who uh, claims that um, the Violence Against Women Act was such an important moment in his career, uh, the Violence Against Women Act was couched within the 1994 um, uh, Crime Act, uh, the, the Clinton Crime Act. Uh, and 
What we're calling for is a process of decriminalization, not a rec recognizing that, um, that threats to safety, threats to security come um, not primarily from what is defined as crime, but rather from the failure of, of, of institutions in our country to address issues of health, issues of, of, of violence, education, etc. So abolition is really about rethinking the kind of future we want, the social future, the economic uh, future, the political future. It's about revolution, I would argue. You write in Freedom is a Constant Struggle, neoliberal ideology drives us to focus on individuals, ourselves, individual victims, individual perpetrators. But how is it possible to solve the massive problem of racist state violence by calling upon individual police officers to bear the burden of that history and to assume that by prosecuting them, by exacting our revenge on them, we would have somehow made progress in eradicating racism? So explain what exactly you're demanding. Well, neoliberal logic assumes that the fundamental unit of society is the individual, uh, and I would say the abstract individual. Um, uh, according to that logic, black people can combat racism by pulling themselves up by their own individual bootstraps. Uh, um, that logic recognizes, or fails rather, to recognize that there are institutional barriers that cannot be uh, brought down by individual determination. If a black person is materially unable to attend the university, the solution is not affirmative action, they argue, but rather the person simply needs to work harder, get good grades, and do what is necessary in order to acquire the funds to pay for tuition. Neoliberal logic deters us from thinking about the simpler solution, which is free education. I'm thinking about uh, the fact that we have been aware of the, the, the need for these institutional strategies at least since 1935, and of course before, but I'm choosing 1935 because that was the year when W.E.B. Du Bois published his uh, germinal uh, Black Reconstruction in America. Um, and the question was not what should individual black people do, but rather how to reorganize and restructure post-slavery society in order to guarantee the incorporation of those who, have, who had been formerly enslaved. The society could not remain the same or should not have remained the same. Neoliberalism resists change at the individual level. It asks the individual to adapt to conditions of capitalism, to conditions of racism. I wanted to ask you, Angela Davis, about the monuments to racists, colonizers, confederates that are continuing to fall across the United States and around the wor world. In St. Paul, Minnesota, Wednesday, activists with the American Indian Movement tied a rope around a statue of Christopher Columbus and pulled it from its pedestal on the state capitol grounds. The AIM members then held a ceremony over the fallen monument. In of Massachusetts, course, um, officials said they'll remove a Columbus statue from a park in Boston's North End after it was beheaded by protesters early Wednesday morning. In Richmond, Virginia, protesters toppled a statue of Confederate President Jefferson Davis from Monument Avenue Wednesday night. In the nearby city of Portsmouth, protesters used sledgehammers to destroy a monument to Confederate soldiers. One person sustained a serious injury, was hospitalized after a statue fell on his head. In Washington, Washington, D.C., House Speaker Nancy Pelosi joined other lawmakers demanding the removal of 11 Confederate statues from the National Statuary Hall in the Capitol. Meanwhile, President Trump said he will not even consider renaming U.S. Army bases named after Confederate military officers. There are 10 such bases, all of them in southern states. Uh, Trump tweeted Wednesday, these monumental and very powerful bases have become part of a great American heritage and a history of winning, victory and freedom, unquote.
Trump's tweet contradicted Defense Secretary Mark Esper and Joint Chiefs of Staff Chair General Mark Milley, who suggested they're open to discussion about renaming the bases. And uh, a Republican committee in the Senate um, just voted to rename uh, these bases, like Benning and Bragg and Hood, that are named for Confederate leaders. Meanwhile, in your hometown of Birmingham, Alabama, Angela, comedian Jermaine Johnson's pleading not guilty to charge of inciting a riot after he urged protesters at a May 31st rally to march on a statue of Charles Lynn, a former officer in the Confederate Navy. Um, did you think you would ever see this? Um, um, you think about Bree Newsom after the horror at uh, Mother Emanuel uh, Church in Charleston, South Carolina, who shimmied up that um, flagpole on the grounds of the South Carolina legislature and took down the Confederate flag, and they put it right on back up. What about what we're seeing today? Uh, well, of course, Bree Newsom was a was a wonderful um, pioneer, and I think it's important to link uh, this trend to uh, the campaign in South Africa. Uh, roads must fall, um, and of course, I think this uh, reflects the extent to which we are being called upon to deeply reflect on the. A role of, of 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 historical racisms that have brought us uh, to the point where we are today. Um, you know, racism uh, racism should have been immediately confronted in the aftermath of of the end of slavery. This is what Dr. Uh, du Bois's uh, analysis was all about. Uh, not so much in terms of, well, what are we going to do about these uh, poor people who have been enslaved so many generations, but rather, how can we reorganize the, our society in order to guarantee the incorporation of previously enslaved people? Now, um, the attention is being turned towards the symbols uh, of slavery, the symbols of of, of colonialism um, and, of course, uh, any campaigns against racism in this country have to address, in the very first place, the uh, conditions of indigenous people. Um, uh, I think it's important that we're seeing these uh, demonstrations, but I think at the same time we have to recognize that we cannot simply get rid of the history. Uh, we have to recognize the devastatingly negative role that that history has played in charting of, uh, of the, the trajectory of the United States of America. Um, and, and so I think that, that these assaults on statues represent an attempt to uh, begin to think through what we have to do to bring down institutions and re-envision them, uh, reorganize them, create um, new institutions that can attend to uh, the needs of all people. And what do you think should be done with statues, for example, to, oh, slaveholding founding fathers like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson? You know, museums can play an important educational role. And I, I don't think we should get rid of all of the vestiges of the past, but we need to figure out context within which people can uh, understand the, 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 the nature of U.S. history and the, the, the role that racism and capitalism and heteropatriarchy have played in forging that history. Can you talk about racism and capitalism? You often write and speak about how they are intimately connected and talk about a world that you envision. Yeah, racism is integrally linked to capitalism. Uh, and, and I think it's a mistake to assume that we can combat racism by leaving capitalism in place. Um, as Cedric Robinson uh, pointed out in his book, Black Marxism, Capitalism is racial capitalism. Uh, 
Um, and of course, to just say for a moment uh, that uh, Marx pointed out um, that what he called primitive accumulation, um, um, capital doesn't just appear from nowhere. The original capital was provided by the labor of slaves. The Industrial Revolution, which pivoted around the production of capital, was enabled by slave labor in the U.S. So I am convinced that the ultimate eradication of racism is going to require us to move toward a more socialist organization of our economies, uh, of our other institutions. I think we have a long way to go before we can begin to talk about an economic system that is not based on exploitation and on the super exploitation of, of Black people, Latinx people, and other racialized populations. Um, but I do think that we now have the conceptual means to engage in discussions, popular discussions, about capitalism. Occupy gave us new language. Uh, the notion of the prison industrial complex requires us to understand the globalization of capitalism. Um, Anti-capitalist consciousness helps us to understand the predicament of immigrants who are barred from the U.S. by the wall that has been created by the current occupant. Um, these conditions have been created by global capitalism. And I think this is a period during which we need to begin that process of popular education, which uh, will allow people to understand uh, the internet interconnections of racism, heteropatriarchy, capitalism. Angela, do you think we need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission here in this country? Well, that might be, you know, one way to begin, but I know we're going to need a lot more than truth and reconciliation, but certainly we need truth. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure how soon reconciliation is going to emerge, um, but I think that, that the whole notion of truth and reconciliation allows us to think differently about the, um, about the criminal legal system. It allows us to imagine a form of justice that is not um, based on revenge, a form of justice that is not retributive. Uh, so I think that those those ideas can help us begin to imagine um, new ways of structuring our um, institutions, uh, uh, such as, um, well, not structuring the prison, because uh, the, the, the whole point is that we have to abolish that institution in order to begin to envision new uh, ways of addressing the conditions uh, uh, that uh, lead to mass incarceration, that lead to uh, such uh, horrendous tragedies as the murder of George Floyd. We're going to come back to this discussion and also talk about President Trump going to Tulsa on Juneteenth. We're speaking with Angela Davis, the world-renowned abolitionist, author, activist, and professor emerita at University of California, Santa Cruz, author of many books, including Freedom is a Constant Struggle. Stay with us.
Shanty Tones by Philistine. This is Democracy Now!, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman, as we spend the hour with the legendary activist scholar Angela Davis, professor emerita at University of California, Santa Cruz. President Trump has announced he's holding his first campaign rally since the quarantine, since lockdowns across the country, since the pandemic. He's holding it in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on June 19th, a highly symbolic day. It was June 19th, 1865, that enslaved Africans in Texas first learned they were free, two years after Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. The day is now celebrated as Juneteenth. California Senator Kamala Harris tweeted in response, this isn't just a wink to white supremacists, he's throwing them a welcome home party, unquote. Well, Tulsa recently marked the 99th anniversary of one of the deadliest mass killings of African-Americans in U.S. history. In 1921, a white mob killed as many as 300 people, most of them black, after a black man was accused of assaulting a white woman. The white mobs destroyed a thriving African-American business district known at the time as the Black Wall Street of America. Well, this all comes as a Tulsa police major is coming under fire after denying systemic racism in the police force there and saying African Americans probably should be shot more. Listen carefully. This is Major Travis Yates in an interview with KFAQ. If a certain group is committing more crimes, more violent crimes, then that number is going to be higher. Well, who in the world in the right mind would think that our shootings should be right along the U.S. census line? All of their research says we're shooting African-Americans about 24 percent less than we probably ought to be based on the crimes being committed. We're shooting them, then, we're shooting them less than they probably ought to be? Tulsa's mayor and police chief have both blasted Yates for the comment, but he remains on the force. And on Friday, President Trump will be there. Angela Davis, your thoughts on the, the, the significance of the moment, the place? Uh, well, that's, um, well, I, I, you know, I can't even respond to anything he does anymore. It's just so, 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 so ridiculous. Uh, uh, and uh, um, it, is, however, um, important to recognize that um, that he represents a, a sector of the population in this country that wants to return to the past, uh, uh, make America great again, uh, uh, with with all of its uh, white supremacy, uh, uh, with all of its misogyny, uh, and uh, I think that. Uh, at this moment, we are recognizing that we cannot be held back by such forces as those represented by the the current um, uh, occupant of uh, of the White House. Uh, um, I doubt very seriously whether the the people who come out to hear him in Tulsa uh, at this on this historic day, of course. All over the, the country, um, people of African descent will be observing Juneteenth as a as a mat, as an emancipatory moment in our our history. Uh, um, but um, I think that 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 our role is to start to begin to translate some of the energy and passion into transforming institutions. Uh, uh, the process has already begun, and it's not—it it can't be turned back, at least not by the current occupant of the, the White House. I'm not suggesting that it's easy to create lasting change, but at least now we can see that it is possible. Uh, when, when someone like Roger Goodell says Black Lives Matter, even though he did not mention um, Colin Kaepernick, and even though he may have—he probably didn't really mean it— what that means is that um, um, the NFL recognizes that it has to begin a new process, uh, that there is a further expansion of, of popular consciousness. Um, and in New York, of course, you need to ask whether you really want to create new jails in the boroughs in the aftermath of closing Rikers, or whether you need new services. Um, 
You know, I've been thinking about the case of, 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 of Jesse Smollett, and I'm wondering why in Chicago, given the conditions surrounding the murder of Laquan McDonald, the police um, department uh, should be thoroughly investigated. And we need to ask, how is it that the public could so easily be rallied to the police narrative of what happened in, in, in the case of uh, Jesse uh, Smollett? So there is so much to be done. And I think that uh, the, the rallies that the current occupant of the White House is holding will uh, fade in, into, uh, don't even merit uh, footnotes in history. Angela Davis, I wanted to ask you about another event that's taken place on Juneteenth, on June 19th. And the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute is finally going to issue the Fred L. Shuttlesworth Award during a virtual event on Juneteenth. And I wanted to ask you about this, because you returned to your hometown of Birmingham, Alabama, last February, after the Institute had at first rescinded the award due to your support for BDS, Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement, and your support of Palestine. Uh, after outcry, the Institute reversed its decision. More than 3,000 people gathered to see you talk at an alternative event to honor you, which was hosted by the Birmingham Committee for Truth and Reconciliation. This is a clip of your comments that day. It became clear to me that uh, this might actually be a teachable moment. Yes. That we might seize this moment uh, to uh, reflect on what it means to live on this planet in the 21st century and our responsibilities not only to people in our immediate community, mm -hmm. but to people all over the planet. We were there covering this amazing moment where the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute had rescinded um, the award to you, the Fred L. Shuttlesworth Award, went through enormous turmoil. Uh, the mayor of Birmingham, so many people across the spectrum, uh, criticized them for it. But then this process happened, and you are going to be awarded this. Can you talk about the significance of this moment and what you plan to say on Juneteenth, the day that President Trump will be in Tulsa? Well, um, thank you for reminding me that these two events are happening on the same uh, day. Um, and of course, uh, that was, um, I think, the last time I actually saw you in person, Amy, uh, in Birmingham. Uh, uh, a lot has happened over the last period, including um, within the context of the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. Um, uh, they have completely reorganized. They have reorganized their board. They have been involved in conversations uh, with uh, the community. Of course, uh, as, as you know, the, the mayor of Birmingham was threatening to withdraw funding from the institute. Uh, uh, there was a generalized uprising in the black community. Uh, and, you know, while at first it was a total shock to me that they offered this award to me and then they rescinded it, uh, I'm realizing now that that was a, an important moment uh, uh, because it encouraged people to think about the meaning of human rights. And why is it that Palestinians could be excluded from the process of working uh, uh, toward human rights? Um, now, Palestinian activists have long supported black people's struggle against racism. Uh, when I was in jail, solidarity coming from Palestine was a major source of courage for me. In Ferguson, Palestinians were the first to express international solidarity. Uh, and and um, uh, there has been this, um, this, this very important connection between the two struggles for many decades. Uh, so that uh, I'm going to be um, really um, happy to receive the award, which now represents a rethinking of the rather backward position that the Institute assumed uh, that uh, Palestinians could be excluded from the circle of those working uh, toward a, a future of justice, equality, and human rights. Speaking about what's going on in the West Bank right now and about the whole issue of international solidarity, um, the global response to the killing of George Floyd, um, 
In the occupied West Bank, protesters denounced Floyd's murder and the recent killing of Iyad el-Halak, a 32-year-old Palestinian special needs student who was shot to death by Israeli forces in occupied East Jerusalem. He was reportedly chanting Black Lives Matter and Palestinian Lives Matter um, when Israeli police gunned him down, claiming he was armed. Um, these links that you're seeing, not only in Palestine and the United States, but around the world, the kind of global response, the tens of thousands of people people who marched in Spain, um, who marched in England, in Berlin, in Munich, all over the world, as this touches a chord and they make demands in their own countries, not only in solidarity with what's happening in the United States. And then I want to ask you about the U.S. election uh, that's coming up in November. Well, um, yes, Palestinian activists have—, uh, have long supported black people's struggle against racism, as, as, I, as I pointed out. Uh, and uh, I, 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 I'm hoping that today's young activists recognize how important Palestinian solidarity has been to the, the, the black cause, and they, that they recognize that we have a profound responsibility to support Palestinian struggles as well. Um, uh, I think it's also important for us to look in the direction of, of Brazil, uh, uh, whose current um, political leader um, competes with our current political leader uh, in um, uh, many uh, um, uh, dangerous ways, I would say. Uh, Brazil, if we think we have a problem with racist police violence in the United States of America. Look at uh, Brazil. Uh, uh, Marielle Franco was assassinated because she was challenging the militarization of the police and the racist violence uh, unleashed uh, there. I think 4,000 people were killed last year alone by the police in, in Brazil. So I, I'm saying this because and, of course, uh, the president of Brazil, a close ally um, of President Trump. We only have two minutes, and I want to get to the election. When I interviewed you in 2016, you said you wouldn't support either main party candidate at the time. What are your thoughts today for 2020? Well, uh, my position really hasn't changed. I'm not going to actually uh, support— uh, either of the major candidates, but but I do think we have to participate in the election. I mean, that isn't to say that I won't vote for the Democratic candidate. Uh, what I'm saying is that um, in our electoral system as it exists, neither party represents the future that we need in this country. Both parties remain connected to corporate capitalism. But the election will not so much be about who gets to lead the country to a better future, but rather uh, how we can support ourselves and our own ability to continue to organize and place pressure on those in power. And I, and I, I don't think there's a question about which candidate would allow that process uh, to un unfold. So I, you know, I think that we're going to have to translate some of the passion uh, that has characterized these demonstrations into uh, work within the electoral arena, recognizing that the electoral arena uh, is not the best place for the expression of radical politics. Uh, but if we want to continue this work, we certainly need a person in office who will be uh, more amenable to our mass pressure. And to me, that is the only thing that someone like uh, Joe Biden um, represents. But we have to persuade people to go out and vote to guarantee that the current occupant of the White House uh, is forever ousted. Angela Davis, want to thank you so much for this hour. World-renowned abolitionist, author, activist, professor emerita at the University of California, Santa Cruz, author of many books, including Freedom as a Constant Struggle, Ferguson, Palestine, and the Foundations of Movement. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us. Stay safe.
Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the big story continues to be the historic public demonstrations against police racism and violence. There's a lot of learning going on. Hopefully some of what's being learned is how much over-policing and violent policing have to do with the so-called war on drugs, which serves as a pretext for much of the harassment of individuals and entire communities of black and brown people. We talked about that with Maritza Perez, director of the Office of National Affairs at Drug Policy Alliance. Also on the show, as the federal and many state governments push to force a reopening of the economy, despite the fact that the coronavirus is not under control, corporations and many Republicans are pushing to ensure that if anyone forced to work or live in conditions made unsafe gets sick, they have no recourse for accountability. It's just as outrageous as it sounds, and we talk about it with Remington Gregg, Counsel for Civil Justice and Consumer Rights at Public Citizen. That's all coming up, and we're going to get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. As Derek Chauvin crushed the life out of George Floyd, one of his colleagues said to appalled onlookers, don't do drugs, kids. The police who broke into Breonna Taylor's home and killed her say their no-knock warrant was related to drugs. U.S. law enforcement can be violent and racist, even without the so-called war on drugs, but it often provides pretext for their actions. And reading that a victim of police brutality was on drugs can put an asterisk on the story for many. Understanding the use of the war on drugs should be part of our general understanding of law enforcement's war on black and brown people. Maritza Perez is director of the Office of National Affairs at the Drug Policy Alliance. She joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Maritza Perez. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, let's get right into it. Drug Policy Alliance released a statement this week on the new piece of police reform legislation in Congress, the Justice in Policing Act. How much do you think the act as is would do in reality on the ground, and what won't it do that's still needed? So first we'll start off by saying that the act does have some really good elements to it. The first time that we would have legislation around creating a national use of force standard, also around data collection, the first time we would have a national database keeping track of police misconduct, also use of force incidents. There are other things in there like banning chokeholds, which is great. So, you know, there are things in the bill that, that are good, but the bill is still lacking in areas, specifically in areas that are related to the drug war, which is why we haven't been able to fully support the bill. You know, on one hand, we we definitely appreciate that Congress is taking a hard look at police reform. This is one of those areas in Congress that is always really, really hard to move on for a number of reasons. So the fact that they even have a bill a comprehensive bill at that is a feat, but we also think that this moment and this opportunity requires something that is much bolder. So some things that we have specifically said that we need to change about the bill are around the war on drugs. For instance, the bill does provide a ban on no-knock warrants, which, as you said in the segment uh, before this interview, you know that's what happened in Breonna Taylor's case. She was shot while she was sleeping in her own bed. The officers who came to her home had a search warrant in the form of a no-knock warrant, which means that they didn't have to notify Brianna that they were on the premises, didn't have to notify folks about their intent before ramming into the home. You know, no-knock warrants are actually really prevalent. Thousands are issued every year. It's actually really easy to get signed off from a judge on a no-knock warrant. Usually they're used in the context of drugs. So the officers will just have to say that, you know, we think that if we give notice, our lives will be in danger or people will dispose of the evidence or the drugs. So it's very rare that a judge will not sign off on a no-knock warrant. And they're often used in SWAT deployments, which just makes it even more deadly. And it's certainly a deadly combination. So the bill does prohibit no-knock warrants. However, it doesn't also prohibit quick-knock warrants, which are legally slightly different from a no-knock warrant. But in practice, it's the same thing. It's the police officers barging into your home before you have any idea of what's happening, before you can respond, 
before you have time to react. And this is what leads to deadly incidents. This practice is not just deadly for civilians, although it is definitely more deadly for civilians than police officers, but it, it also affects law enforcement because officers have lost their lives using these types of warrants. Why? Because if somebody barges into your home, your, your, your first thought is going to be that it's somebody trying to break in. So you might try to retaliate. So we think it's very important, especially in drug cases, that officers announce their presence and give the occupants time to answer the door to avoid death. So one thing that we've been pushing for with this bill is to include quick knock warrants in the prohibition around no knock warrants. Something else that we think is missing from the bill is the fact that this bill attempts to reform the Department of Defense's 1033 program. The 1033 program is a program that's been around for approximately 30 years at this point. It allows the Department of Defense to transfer military-grade equipment to local and state police departments. I think the public really became aware of this program around the time of the Michael Brown protest in Ferguson. I think people were really just astonished to see that local law enforcement had access to uh, things like tanks, riot gear, the types of things that you think you would see in a war zone, not in a community or in a neighborhood. But, you know, the reason that law enforcement has this is because over the years, this program has allowed billions, more than $7 billion worth of equipment to get transferred to local and state departments. This program is also notorious for being mismanaged. In fact, a couple of years ago, the Government Accountability Office conducted a report and review of the program, and they actually created a fake law enforcement agency and were able to get military-grade equipment from the program, pretending to be like this non-existent law enforcement agency. So that just kind of paints a picture of how little managed and how much little oversight there is of this program, which is scary because, again, it's military equipment going into the hands of police officers and who knows who else. The bill does include reform around the program, but we don't think reform is enough. We think that the program needs to be abolished. You know, one reason that law enforcement can make a case for getting this equipment is saying that they are conducting counter-narcotics investigations. The bill would take that piece out, but law enforcement would still be able to get the equipment through other ways, including saying that, you know, they are conducting counterterrorism investigations. That could be another way they get this equipment. Our concern is that the equipment would still go to them and that it would still be used against people. And that's what we don't want. You know, and I, I do want to point out that military equipment and no-knock warrants are super tied. I mentioned before that no-knock warrants are often used in conjunction with SWAT raids. The police will often use quick-knock, no-knock warrants during SWAT deployments, specifically during drug investigations, disproportionately against people of color in drug investigations. So we really think that reform won't save the program. The program needs to be done away with. We just need to put an end to militarized policing. And then lastly, you know, what we think the bill fails to do is just really reimagine what public safety can look like. It's still relying on federal funding to encourage police officers and law enforcement to do the right thing. It's still saying, well, if you do these things, if you implement these policies, we won't take away your funding. But ultimately, it's still diverting resources to law enforcement. And in fact, there are other areas within the bill that give law enforcement money to implement some of these rules. It's not just like being used as a stick saying like, well, we'll take your money if you don't do this. It's also like, we'll give you money so you can do X, Y, and Z. And I think that Congress really needs to listen to people on the ground who are saying, now is the time where we need to divest from law enforcement and invest in our communities. Invest in things that actually create public safety and create safe communities. Things like quality education, things like jobs and living wages. Things like safe and affordable housing, things like harm reduction. If we're talking about people who use drugs, I think a better investment would be in harm reduction services and programs for people who really need them. That would save lives. That would reduce violence. I think this bill really does fail to imagine what public safety could look like. That's our biggest problem with it. They're not listening to people on the ground. And, you know, we're trying to just help Congress think through what people are actually asking. They're not saying fund police right now. In fact, they're saying the opposite. They're saying invest in our communities. This bill doesn't go far enough. So unfortunately, as the bill currently is written, we cannot throw our support behind it. We hope that in the coming days, Congress gets the bill to a place where we could support, because like I said, there are a lot of good things in the bill. There are some good things in there, and 
Congress hasn't acted on police reform in quite some time. So this is a really great opportunity, but we think they should seize the moment and really push for something bold. The moment today requires bold action, and this bill is just not it. Well, let me ask you also, I think that some people think, well, you know, cannabis is legal now, you know, is the war on drugs really still happening? You know, I think they, they, they imagine there's been a sea change in that. When you're answering how the war on drugs fits in the overall picture of police racism and of over-policing, how do you explain it to people? Like that it's still going on just because you can go to the dispensary and get some pot doesn't mean that people are not still being um, policed and, and harmed by, by law enforcement under the guise of a war on drugs. You know, I think that's one reason that we actually have for a long time been saying that we need to think beyond marijuana legalization and we need to think about all drug decriminalization because as long as we criminalize things that are low level, one, and then things that a lot of people turn to for survival, for example, drug selling or sex work, those are things that some people do just to survive. And as long as those things remain criminalized, it's giving police cover to go after black and brown people for things that are crimes on the books, even though they may not be harming anybody, even though the crime may not be a threat to public safety. The fact that we even have criminal laws on the books and a number of criminal laws will always disproportionately hurt minority communities, people of color, because we feel the brunt of police enforcement. So we need to chip away at all of those things that really we need to ask ourselves, is this actually something that will, that needs to be criminalized, that will actually endanger public safety? And if the answer is that it won't, then we should take it off the books because we need to make sure that they don't have excuses to continue to harass and target our communities because it's just going to continue to happen. I think what you said earlier about, you know, marijuana being legalized, you can go to a dispensary. I think, unfortunately, like, people just have different experiences in America based on your skin color. I think if, if you're white and you don't experience police harassment, you might think marijuana legalization did it, right? I can go get my weed from a store and things are fine. Nobody's harassing me. The data says something different. Like, even if you look at states that have legalized marijuana, the people who are still being disproportionately arrested for marijuana activity, the people who are still being cited are black and brown people, the people who feel the brunt of all police enforcement. So I think we should all just be committed to just decriminalizing things, getting things off the books if we really want to help communities of color. But also we just need to rethink law enforcement. I mean, do we really think it's a good use of taxpayer resources to throw somebody in jail or give somebody a, a life record for smoking marijuana, something that's like legal in most states at this point. So it's a good question and, and something that we should reconsider. I think policing is a good start, but I think we also just need to continue to chip away at criminal justice and uh, have a conversation about criminal justice reform. We've been speaking with Maritza Perez of the Drug Policy Alliance. You can follow their work online at drugpolicy.org. Thank you so much, Maritza Perez, for joining us today on Counterspin. Thank you for having me. The U.S. now has more than 2 million confirmed coronavirus cases. Health officials will tell you the real number is doubtless much higher. At least 113,000 people have died. The pandemic is far from under control, but that isn't stopping the White House and many states from pushing to fully reopen, even as we see places that have reopened reporting increases in hospitalizations. But wait, there's more. As millions try to weigh the safety risk of returning to work with the economic cost of not doing so, there's a push, led in Congress by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, to grant corporations legal immunity from liability for any harms workers may suffer from being forced back into workplaces that are unsafe. We're joined now by Remington Craig, Counsel for Civil Justice and Consumer Rights at Public Citizen. He joins us by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Remington Craig. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, I want to ask, are they serious? But we know they are. Are we missing something, or is it that basic that if a person's job requires them, for example, to work in close quarters with other people or doesn't provide masks or sanitizer, and that person gets sick with COVID-19, there'd be no way for them to get accountability from the employer? Well, that's the long and short of the proposal. Now, that's with the caveat that there is nothing on paper So we just have to go with what Mitch McConnell and others are saying. And they are saying that they want to immunize businesses from liability for coronavirus-related lawsuits. It's not just workers and consumers who would get the shaft, but it could conceivably 
extend to other types of claims, for example, civil rights claims or environmental claims, and you claim that a business has been polluting and not following proper regulations, and they can say, well, I'm sorry, like you can't sue us because this is coronavirus related. So it is a sweeping proposal, both in the breadth of what it would do, but also in the sense that it would paper over the laws of all 50 states. Wow. Well, if the notion is that we should just trust companies to do what's right, don't we already have evidence that that doesn't work? Exactly. Uh, Just this week, we've seen data that infection rates are increasing in meatpacking plants. We now know that almost 40% of all coronavirus deaths are from nursing home residents and workers in those spaces. So a lot of businesses are not doing what they need to do to take reasonable precautions to protect workers and consumers. And that's why we need strong laws on the books. The problem is that we don't, right? The Trump administration has flat out refused to issue any sort of standards that would require businesses to follow as they reopen. So they're refusing to issue those because, you know, the the Trump administration doesn't believe in regulation. So why would they start now? Uh, If you then take away people's rights to go to court as well, then there's absolutely no way to hold bad actors accountable. Well, we've seen a bunch of deregulatory moves recently, and the line seems to be, well, companies can't be bothered to follow regulations now because that's holding back the reopening. Well, call me cynical, but it seems like the pandemic is just being used as cover to bring out a, a wish list that they've had for some time now. You couldn't have put it better. I mean, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has been seeking this for years, if not decades. It's really sad that such a powerful organization would use a pandemic simply to get something on their wish list. But here we are. And that's why we have to fight incredibly hard against these proposals, against any action by McConnell and Senate Republicans. And we have to you know, make it clear to House Democrats, Speaker Pelosi, to Senate Democrats, Leader Schumer, that people won't stand by and have their rights taken away in a pandemic. And, I mean, corporations are pretty protected already, aren't they? I mean, so many have forced arbitration, you know, where you're, you can't really sue them anyway. It seems like it's not even really necessary, frankly. Well, that's right. Uh, it isn't necessary. But just because it isn't necessary doesn't mean that they won't fight for it because, you know, that would mean that they would be completely immunized. You know, workers have a difficult time bringing claims because of, as you said, forced arbitration. But also, almost every state has worker compensation laws, which means that if you get sick on the job, you have to go through workers' comp. You cannot sue an employer. And so you have those barriers that stop you in your tracks, basically, from being able to sue your employer. And then the final piece is for for everyone, uh, employers and consumers, it would be almost impossible it'd be incredibly difficult for you to prove that you contracted coronavirus, say, in a store, a uh, hair salon, dry cleaners, or restaurant. Why? Because under the law, you have to prove causation. You have to prove that this place took unreasonable actions, and you can follow the line from those unreasonable actions to you getting coronavirus. But if States are opening up, as we see, opening up too fast and too soon. People are going to, you know, to swimming pools. They're going to dry cleaners and restaurants and movie theaters. There's no way to prove that you got it at the same movie theaters versus the dry cleaners. Right. Or even that you got it in the workplace versus on the bus to work. So, you know, this idea that they need this is just this chicken little notion that they have that the sky is falling when, in fact, uh, if anything but. Yeah. Well, you have just come from a, a presser, a, a telepresser, I should say, on this issue with Senator Sherrod Brown. Public Citizen has a new report. But tell us how that press conference went. What do reporters want to know about? Well, you know, they, they want to know how serious Republicans are about this, or is this chest something? And, you know, we say that this is, again, the, the Chamber of Commerce has been pushing this for 30 years. So they're just pushing every lever and every button to do this. And we walk through step by step the reasons why 
this is unnecessary and why it would be harmful to workers and consumers. One reporter said that she asked Senator John Cornyn, who is the second in command in the Republican leadership in the Senate, what he wanted to see. And he said that he's for immunizing businesses so long as a business chooses to abide by some sort of health guideline. Now, when you say that, you know, if you just say it off the cuff, you go, okay, I guess. But when you know anything about employment law or public health or any sort of law, you see how absolutely ridiculous this is. He's saying, number one, as long as you choose some sort of guidelines. Well, number one, there are no federal guidelines. And then number two, what, are you going to choose state guidelines or local guidelines? Basically, he wants companies to be able to choose the least robust and the least enforceable guidelines that are out there. And then two, he says, well, guidelines, and we have to be very clear, there's a difference between regulations and guidelines. The Trump administration has put out a lot of guidelines saying you may do this or you should do that, but they haven't put out anything that says you must. As workers are going back to work, as we push especially black and brown workers, low-income workers back to work without protections, it's laughable that Senate Republicans are saying we don't need any sort of government standards in place to force businesses to do what's right. We're just going to allow them to do whatever they kind of sort of want to do if they have a moment to take away time from building up their profits. So if people go back into workplaces that aren't safe and they get sick, besides the harm that's done to them, I mean, won't that ultimately slow the economic recovery that this is all supposedly aiming for? I mean, that's the reason why this is just so ludicrous when you would scratch the surface. Consumer confidence is at an all-time low. And Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said a week or two ago that he's convinced that the economy will not get back up and running until there's consumer confidence. Well, guess what won't instill consumer confidence? A law that immunizes businesses if they don't do what's right to keep people safe. Why in heaven's name would I decide to go back to restaurants and movie theaters if they have no incentive to do the right thing to keep me safe? Well, we already have seen workers who complain about health risks or unsafe workplaces being punished for that by their employers. So you wonder how you can turn around and say, but we should still trust those same employers to protect workers without the possibility of any legal pushback. Right. We've seen workers try to say something. It's easier when you have a union. People who don't, they submit whistleblower complaints, and sometimes those are successful and and sometimes they're not. We've seen some workers in local unions go out on wildcat strikes, which are strikes that aren't authorized by the union itself to protest some unsafe conditions. And again, we've seen a lot of these localized unions are mainly black and brown people, recent immigrants, and they don't have as big of a bully pulpit. Make no mistake, people are complaining. People are shouting. People are trying to sound the alarm. But the question is, are we going to listen to them? And are we going to stand up for the people who have essentially been keeping our economy running while we have all been staying home? And I keep saying workers, but colleges want immunity. Nursing homes have immunity, which is already an issue. So it really is everyone that is ultimately affected by this? This is a societal issue. Obviously, we think first and foremost about workers and consumers, but soon, I mean, we already are starting to think about what this means uh, for students going back. Just think about it. A dorm is like a cruise ship on land, right? And if you're not willing to go on a cruise right now, we need to think really carefully about what that means for our dorm. And so for schools to be saying we want to immunize ourselves for not taking the reasonable cautions we should be taking is crazy. You know, ensuring that we protect our seniors and others living in long-term care facilities. Remember, long-term care facilities are not just for seniors, but they're for people living with disabilities and others. Make no mistake about it. The nursing home lobby is one of the most powerful lobbies in this country. And they have been systematically going from state to state to immunize themselves. And, you know, they've been successful, but they've also hit some roadblocks. New York recently 
gave them immunity, but now there's pushback, and some legislators are thinking about how they're able to roll that back mm-hmm. because they're seeing how much is happening in nursing homes, 40% of all deaths from residents and, and workers, and why should they be immune from accountability? So stay tuned. There's a lot going on both on the federal level, but because the Chamber of Commerce is one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful lobby in this country, and they have a massive amount of resources, and they are going from state to state if they possibly can uh, to try to get their wish for immunity. Well, we will stay tuned. Um, Let me just ask you, finally, I was disturbed to read Nancy Pelosi not saying a strong no on this, at least back in May. We have no red lines, she said. The public, unsurprisingly, hates the idea, polling shows, of corporate immunity. But if it winds up being part of a stimulus bill that has other things that people want, it might get horse-traded into reality, or couldn't it? We are continuing to talk about how important it is to ensure accountability for all people. Like, look, right now, we don't have much accountability when it comes to the stimulus money. There's very little oversight being done there. Um, We have no oversight of the executive branch uh, that the uh, Congress is trying, but the administration is flouting everything. You know, so the best way that, that we, the people right now, are able to hold people accountable is through the justice system. And so removing that would be incredibly harmful to everyday people. You know, right now we should be, and this is the message, and this is the message that we will continue to talk about. We have to we have to save our economy from another great depression. We need to provide for first responders and teachers. We need to ensure that our uh, unemployment insurance is extended. We need to ensure that everyday people can provide for their families. We shouldn't be talking about immunity. This shouldn't be part of the conversation. We've been speaking with Remington Gregg of Public Citizen. The new report is called Corporate Accountability, the Next Coronavirus Casualty. You can find that and lots of other work on their website, citizen.org. Remington Gregg, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show's engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. <laughs>